Hey, guy, in the back of the Old Testament. Trust that God has spoken to your heart this last several weeks as we've gone through this little book. Only two chapters. And uh, um, today is the last message of uh, the prophet Haggai to the people of God. And remember the first message, we talked about building God's house and it dealt with their hands in chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. And that happened on our modern day calendar, we'll say August 29th, 520 B.C. The second message that the prophet brought to the people of God was we looked at in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, and he dealt with their hearts. And uh, he talked about the best is yet to come. He wanted to encourage them and yet still uh, convict them as well through the Spirit of God. And that was on October 17th. And then we remember the last two messages of the prophet in this little book occurred on the same day, on December 18th, 520 B.C. And the, uh, we looked at one last week. The third message was in verses 10 to 12. And we talked about how God's blessing, bringing down God's blessing from above. And uh, we realized that the reason that wasn't happening, they were heeding the call of God and they were dealing with rebuilding the temple and all that, but they still didn't see God lift um, or bless the, uh, the famine and the drought that was going on. And we talked about the necessity for us to uh, make sure that we have pure lives, pure hearts before God, which deals with confession of sin. We need to confess, we needed to be holy, we needed to do self-examination, and we also needed to be blessed. That was what we looked at last week. Um, Well, today we're going to close out this little book, and we're going to be talking about His Day Will Come. And there's just four little points that I want to share with you in in a couple verses here. Um, But remember, in in our last study... uh, we're beginning in verse 20 today. You remember that um, Judah had come out of captivity. And uh, here they are. And Cyrus the king had told them that they were allowed to rebuild the temple. But through discouragements and whatnot, uh, they stopped. And for 16 years, the temple laid uh, in ruins there. And uh, the king Darius uh, once again allowed them to rebuild the temple and uh, this is where we basically pick this book up and Haggai is coming along and and even though they were allowed to do it they were discouraged to do the work of God and sometimes that's um, we may feel that way as well but follow along as I read our text this morning just out of Haggai chapter 2 verses 20 through 23 the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month Remember, this is the the, uh, fourth of four messages. He says in verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. 
On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this is an interesting text to build a a message um, from. But remember, this is the same day that they just received the message that we went over last week. We don't know what the time frame difference is, whether it was an hour later or when, but it was a little bit later in the day, you might say, and uh, it was on the 18th of December, 520 B.C., our uh, modern um, dates. So the Lord speaks, and if you look at verse 20, it says that the Lord came a second time. He spoke again. In other words, the Lord had already spoken to Judah on this date, and it must have been an incredible time to be there. You think about it, the prophet of God bringing the message of God, and you're hearing the message of God directly through God's messenger. To hear that once would be something, but to hear it twice in the same day, telling the people of Judah what to do, uh, must have been incredible. Do you know that God can speak more than just once in a day? (laughs) Um, Sometimes I think we don't believe that. The reason I say that is we always relegate a certain time for our devotions, right? And we're faithful at it. And we maybe spend several minutes or maybe an hour or whatever with the Lord in prayer and His Word. and, And we walk away from that time thinking, okay, that's it. God spoke to my heart today. Well, see, here the people heard a message from God a second time. They had it twice in one day, where God was coming by His Spirit, through His messenger, bringing His message, telling them what they needed to do. I want to ask you this morning, have you been spoken to by God today? Even yet? Where you're at, where you sit. Have you been around God's Word today? Have you been in a place of prayer today? Have you been seeking His face? Have you been in communion with Him? So I look out, I see some of your faces are glowing. That means yes. Just like Moses, right? You've been in the presence of God. God has already spoken to you. If you've been reading the Word today, um, you must have been sure that God was speaking to your heart through His Word. And I pray and I hope that the past several weeks, if we've worked our way through this little book, that God has definitely spoken to your heart, just as he has spoken to my heart, as we've looked at some of the details and little gems that we found in this book of Haggai. Um, I, I pray that God has been speaking to your heart. But I want to ask you, could it be that week after week as we sit here together on a Sunday morning and God speaks to our hearts, maybe that God is revealing certain things to your heart, to my heart. Maybe he's unveiling certain things through his word. Maybe God has, as he has in my life, convicted you of certain things in your life. Maybe God has been encouraging you. 
in certain places where you have been discouraged or you have been beaten down or down, downtrodden uh, just from the world or your circumstances, whatever it is. Um, I, I want you to understand this morning, no matter what it is, whether it's an exhortation from God's Word, whether it's an encouragement from God's Word, or maybe even a rebuke, I pray that God has been speaking to your hearts through His Word. And my question this morning is, does God need to speak again? You see, God needed to speak again here to these people the second time on the same day. Um, We learned that last week and the previous weeks that these people here, these Israelites, they were hearing the word of God. And we saw back in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. In other words, they just didn't hear or read the word of God. There was something more to it. It says that their bones were stirred by the word of God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were motivated by the Spirit of God. And they began to put brick upon brick on the foundation of the temple. And they began to rebuild it. And to start the work of God afresh and anew. But we saw last week that that wasn't enough. (laughs) Why was it not enough? They were stirred by the Word of God. We could be stirred by the Word of God. They maybe realized that their state before God as they did, and it made them fear. They began to do the things that they weren't doing. And maybe that's what you've been doing in the past week as God has pinpointed and put his finger right on your heart in certain areas of your life or your service to God. Maybe you've decided, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to recommit. Well, these folks, they looked at the sky and there was no rain, even though they were obeying God. They looked at the ground and there was no crops, even though they were doing what God requested them to do. And no matter how much they obeyed the word of God or were moved by the word of God, it seemed that nothing happened. (laughs) And God had to come in nearly at the end of this letter here, this small little prophet, and say this, the reason why nothing is happening is because you haven't confessed your sin. We talked about that last week. Now here we are again, and the second time, on the same day, God is coming, and you notice in verses 20 and 21 that God's message is now not delivered to the whole nation of Judah. Please look at that. It says in verse 21, who is, who is he to speak to? Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Who was Zerubbabel? If you remember, we noted that in verse 14 of chapter 1, that both Zerubbabel and Joshua were stirred by the word of God. Joshua was the head of all the religious and kind of ecclesiastic system of Judah, and he was the high priest. But Zerubbabel was more of the civil, he was the political leader of the whole nation, you might say. Therefore, in verse 21, we see that the fourth message was directed specifically, not to Joshua and the remnant and all the other people, but just to Zerubbabel. Why do you think that is? I think one of the reasons is, is that Zerubbabel, he needed encouragement. 
He needed special encouragement from the Lord at this point in time in his ministry. Um, Sometimes we preach the Word of God and sometimes we read the Bible and sometimes we read it in a very, uh, you might say, general way. In other words, we read this little book of Haggai and as we begin to look at these Judeans and then, you know, we see how that applies and then we jump over to Matthew and we read it as being written to Jews, showing king is the Christ, or you jump over to Mark, and that's kind of to the Greeks. Or the book of Romans, it's written to the Romans, or Corinthians, it's written to the church at Corinth. See, but I think in certain times in our lives, we need to stop, and we need to come to the Word of God, and we need to ask Him, and we need to say, you know what, God, what is this saying to me? I understand the context, I understand why you wrote this, and all the historical background, but God, what do you have for me out of your Word? There used to be a little, kind of a nursery rhyme almost, that uh, we used to sing in uh, Sunday school at the, another church I was at. It said, every promise in the book is mine, every letter, every word, every line. So you have to understand that it's all for us. It's the word of God. And we have to come on Sunday mornings or when we do our devotions or throughout the week, whenever it is, expecting God to speak to our hearts. And when you're in need, and maybe you're sitting here this morning in great need, I don't know. I want to encourage you to get into God's word. He will will bless you and he's got everything in there for you to help you get through whatever you're going through. So Zerubbabel, the civil leader here of the Judean people, was discouraged. He was downhearted, you might say. And a lot of times, a lot of people who are involved in ministry get to that point. A lot of times, Satan often will attack leaders within God's people. And the reason he does that, because he knows if he can take the leaders down, he'll take the rest of them down. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, remember who he was. I mean, we're, we're talking about an incredible man of God here, probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. Other, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. And he, he turned to these believers, and these believers were probably half his spiritual stature. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, that he says, Brethren, what do he say? Pray for us. Pray for us. I thank God that some of you have said, you know, on Sunday mornings I pray for you, Pastor. I appreciate that. And I thank you for it, and I feel the benefit of your prayers. I want to ask you this morning, do you pray for our elders? Do you pray for our Sunday school teachers? Do we pray for the folks on the worship team? Do we pray for people who are doing the work of God in this place? Maybe they're serving God in the kitchen. Maybe they're helping in the nursery. Maybe they're doing the finances. Do we pray for these people? Because I guarantee you this, the people on the front line are the first ones to get hit. So we need to make sure that we're praying for those who are serving the Lord. I don't know what circumstances Zerubbabel was in here other than what what we're told. 
But I bet you I can speculate a little bit. Maybe Zerubbabel was at this moment. He looked around him, and here was this little nation of Judah, just came out of captivity, absolutely discouraged from doing the work of God, absolutely drained of all political, religious worth and strength, and he's standing there, and he's looking around at it, and all the nations and the empires around the Medo-Persian Empire and the rising empires, the great nations that were built like a wall around Judah, and perhaps as he saw this, Although he was in his freedom. I mean, he was free to do what God had called him to do. He came out of captivity. Perhaps he was beginning to despair a little bit. Perhaps he feared for the future remnant of the Jews at this point, the people of God. Thinking, boy, I don't know what's going to happen. Look at all these nations around us, all these enemies we have. They had been downtrodden for 70 years in Babylon. They got out by God's gracious hand. And they were given permission to build the temple of God. And yet they were discouraged by the Samaritans at one point. It was put off for 16 years. Then they were given permission again. But then they were also downtrodden. And they were stuff, they just, they got, you know, just beat up by the circumstances that they found themselves in. That they couldn't even lay a finger on that temple. And so Zerubbabel is here standing here, the head of this crew that's supposed to be doing God's work, and he's looking around them, and he's looking around at those who are pressing in on him from other nations. And he looks to heaven, and perhaps he despairs at the circumstances around him. I don't know. But you know what? God knew because God gave him this message. Would you agree with me that circumstances have a tendency to discourage you at times? They just do. I I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know the Holy Spirit knows. And he knows your circumstances at this very moment in time. Maybe you feel like Zerubbabel in the just despairing over your circumstances. You don't know where to turn. Those that are nearest and dearest to you, like those for Zerubbabel, the Judeans were past themselves your enemies are against you everything is against you and you look at heaven it's as brass and the ground is dust there's nowhere to turn you're desperate i mean this can happen this can happen especially when you're trying to build god's work when you're trying to strengthen the kingdom of god What do you need when you get in those circumstances? What do you need? What do you need when you're feeling downtrodden and you're you're feeling just beaten upon? Well, God gave Zerubbabel exactly what he needed in his fourth message. He needed to be encouraged. And God came beside Zerubbabel and he brought this great message to encourage the governor's faith. By the faith of God. Why did he do that? Because, beloved, either you have faith or you have unbelief. Unbelief always stops and robs us of God's blessing. It always does. When we have unbelief in our life, it's always going to rob us of God's blessing. See, if Zerubbabel was to be blessed, he had to be encouraged to get out of this unbelieving state in his life. And you can't just take somebody like that and batter them over the head with a rod or the word of God or whatever. Just tell them to believe. They have to be encouraged to believe. 
And when you're in the midst of despair, and maybe you're in the midst of sin or discouragement or failure or bereavement, whatever it may be, and everything seems to be coming in on you from every angle, it's no good beating somebody like that up. That's not going to do anybody any good. It's better to take them and encourage them through the Word of God. And you encourage them to have faith in God. can't help but think in this Christian age that we live in, how many Christians are unbelieving believers? <laughs> They're unbelieving believers. Do you know what unbelief is? Unbelief is this. Unbelief is whatever doubts God's word. Unbelief calls God a liar. And actually, worse than that, unbelief identifies God as a perjurer. Because not only are you saying that his word is not believable, but that his very oath to you is not believable, it's not true. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is faith. Faith unlocks the storehouse of God. Faith breaks open to us the checkbook of God through, the God's, through God's riches and the riches of his word. But unbelief is what puts a barrier between every child and those resources. Someone has said that the church has halted somewhere between Calvary and Pentecost. (laughs) Remember the church, a little embryo, as they were discouraged. Think back with me just for a second. After the crucifixion, just beginning. And the Lord Jesus Christ was in the grave. Ask yourselves, have we got stuck somewhere there in discouragement, in failure, in unbelief? And we haven't walked in, like Hebrews says, into the land of Canaan and promise where the Spirit of God in all his blessings falls on us. Are we unbelieving believers is my question. Now you have to make a distinction this morning between different kinds of faith. There's a natural faith and there's a spiritual or a supernatural faith. You have to understand, most women, most men have natural faith. Sometimes when you hear some illustrations in gospel preaching about faith, it's no more faith, God's faith, than, you know, anything else. It's, It's just natural faith. There's natural faith. There's faith that you have in your chair that it's going to hold you up. You didn't walk over to your chair and test it out and push on it and say, I don't know if this thing's going to hold me this morning, but we'll try. You know, you didn't do that. You just plopped yourself down. Why? Because you have faith. You have a natural faith in the ability of that chair to hold you up. That's the faith that men have had when they've had a vision of, say, a telephone or electricity, when they were inventing things, a plane, whatever it might be. And they followed that vision. And they actually accomplished it. That's that's natural faith. This faith that the Word of God speaks of is not natural faith. It's supernatural faith. Spiritual faith, you might say. It has nothing to do with the ability of man. It is a gift given by God because man, in his sinful state, cannot muster it up in and of ourselves. 
It's something that gets not just into your intellect and into your mind, but it gets into your very will and your soul and your heart. And it begins to alter your affections. This is something that sets you on fire for the Lord. It's something that's buried deep within your being as a spiritual entity. And it's something that you can't even really define. It's something that God gives us by the Holy Spirit. You know that God loves to be trusted? God just wants to be trusted. Last week at the end of our service, we read out of Malachi and it says, Prove me now, says the Lord. See, that's from a position of faith. It's not some skeptic or atheist going out in a field and say, okay, God, if you're there, struck me with, strike me with lightning. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what he's saying. He's talking to believers, wanting to prove that he is a God who he says he is and that his word is true and that his promises are watertight. Do we prove God daily in our living for him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ hated unbelief? He just hated it. Do you remember the occasion in Matthew 9 of Jairus' daughter? We've been through this, but you can turn over there if you want. Matthew 9. I mean, you can read this on your own, but just draw a couple things out of this. He knew that she was dying. And he came, his, her, her father, and he came to the Lord Jesus. And you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He went to heal the woman with the issue of blood. Remember that little kind of parenthetical miracle in there? And in the meantime, the poor girl's dying to the point where she actually passed away. She died. And that father, that man, with tears running down his face, was imploring Christ that he would come. And as far as he's concerned, Christ wasn't a bit interested. Because he was almost kind of ignoring the whole situation. Finally, someone came up to him and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Trouble the master no more because the girl's dead. In other words, don't worry about it now. She's dead. Not going to do any good to bring him, bring him there now. And you remember... The Lord went with that man to that house, and you remember the scene. And what happened was that they walked in, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is and who was and who will always be the author of life, stood there over this dead girl, and she, he said, she sleeps. What was their reaction? One of mockery almost. They laughed. They were scorning him. Who does he think he is? Saying that this little girl is sleeping. What a horrible thing to say to someone who just lost their child. Does he not know that a, what a dead body looks like? This, this little girl's dead. And then you notice the, the point in time where it says that he put them out. Says they laughed at him in verse 24. But when the crowd had been put outside, see that? You think, well, wait a minute, if he's there to do a miracle, you think he'd want all those people there to see it, right? 
I mean, isn't that why they do all these miracles on TV? They have a big crusade and they invite all these people. They bring them up on stage in front of everybody and, quote, heal them. Not so with Jesus. What did he do? It says he put them out. Why did he do that? Because Christ always puts out unbelief. He hates it. Has the Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you this morning, put out unbelief in your own life? What discourages me more than anything is when I find Christians who will not believe the word of God. And even in my own life, at times, an unbelief in my own heart concerning the word of God and what God wants to do, what God can do. And sometimes because the circumstances are so big, we lose heart in God's word. We lose faith. We have unbelief. Then you have people that are always going around with a big bucket of ice cold water. You know, you're, you've just come back from a retreat or you've come down off the mountain and man, you're just, you're just on fire for God. And someone comes along with a big bucket of water and just dumps it all over you. Well, just, you know, <laughs> give them a little time. They'll be like the rest of us. You've got a promise. Maybe God laid something on your heart, whether it's a ministry or a mission or whatever it might be. And they just come along and say, well, don't get too fanatical about this, you know. I was witnessing to a friend recently, and he was telling me that he was raised in a Baptist home, kind of been around religion all his life, and tries to do the right thing, and went on and on and on. And I shared the gospel several times with this individual. But one thing that struck me, was recently he was in a situation where kind of an accident and he was kind of desperate. And I remember him saying, yeah, you know, I got to make some changes. And, you know, my, my sister's, she's involved in her church. And I, I think maybe that's what we need to start doing. And uh, I said, well, I, I would welcome that. I think that would be wise. And, and uh, he said, well, now, he goes, I, I want to make sure, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm a Christian. This is exactly what he said to me. He goes, I'm a Christian. And I said, okay. But I'm not born again. I'm not one of those born again Christians. I'm a, but I'm a Christian. And I thought, boy, <laughs> how lost you can be, you know. And because of the circumstances that we were in, um, God didn't open the door for me to take him to say that, you know, the Bible, Jesus said you have to be born again. But that day will come. But it's interesting sometimes how we look at faith. And people that come along and say, well, don't get too fanatical. I mean, I want to I get some faith in my life, but I don't want to become one of those born-again, crazy-eyed Christians, you know, that actually see God change their life and are interested in sharing the Word of God with others. I mean, I don't want to go that far. And sometimes you, God gives you a vision or gives you a kind of a, a short-term or a long-range goal that maybe you believe God you're believing God to, to work through you in this fashion or whatever, and someone comes along and just slowly they just burst your bubble. You know, I mean, you just want to punch them in the nose, you know, to be honest. I mean, sometimes it's like, what are you doing? You know, why would you do that? Um, that's what unbelief is. That's what we're talking about here. People who will not believe God because they can't believe God. They don't want anybody else to believe God either. 
a little poem that says, Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by many a foe, that will not tremble on the brink of poverty or woe. Beloved, I look around and, and, and I see this Bay Area and I say, you know what? It's not like we live in, in the Bible Belt. There's a lot of people out there that are lost and dying and on their way, the fast track to hell. I mean, do you pray for more people to be saved, for more souls to be saved? Do you pray for more people in our chairs here at church? Do you pray for more children to minister to? Do you pray for the day, the week, when we can say, you know what, we can't even drain the baptismal because people are getting baptized every week. We've got to fill it up every week. Do you pray for parking issues? The day when our parking lot will be full and the neighbors will be complaining? When we look around and say, where are we going to put all these kids? We, we don't have enough room. Do you pray and do you believe that God will do great things through this church? Or are you sitting there this morning saying, well, yeah, that happened before. You know, circumstances, church splits, whatever. Are you still believing that God can do that? I could see if we lived in the Bible Belt and there was a church on every corner and everybody was saved around us. Hey, I don't have an issue with that. But you know what? On the other hand, we're, I mean, there's people all around us who need to hear the gospel of Christ. See, and our role as a church is not to invite a bunch of non-believers here into our church. I mean, hey, if they came, praise God. They're more than welcome. They'd hear the truth. But see, the purpose of the local church is to equip the believers of God to take the word of God out into a lost and dying world so that we could see lives transformed by his truth. Do you believe that God can use you in this community where you work, where you play, where you eat, whatever you do out there? Do you believe that God can use you to take his word, his truth, and transform people's lives? See, it's not you. You're just, as we began, you're just the message boy. You know, you're, you're just the person who's taken the truth of God to these people. But I think we've grown cold in our view and our belief that, yeah, that's how God wants to do it. See, so many times today, churches look at that and they say, well, you know what? Expository teaching, that's, you know, that's something for dinosaurs. You don't do that anymore. You know, the pastor shouldn't teach you know, verse by verse and, and spend you know, year after year in one gospel. That's boring your people. And so we've got to come up with a new way. We've got to come up with, you know, the pastor doesn't preach. He gets up and he has a talk. And it's a 20 to 30 minute talk. And maybe there's a couple verses strewn in here and there. But pretty much it's to make everybody feel good so we can walk out of here saying, wow, that was really nice. That's not going to affect the kingdom of God at all. It's going to fill a church up. But that's not why we're here. We're here to see the lost converted to Christ. And where's that going to take place? It's not going to take place here Sunday morning. It's going to take place Monday through Saturday as you're out in the highways and the byways and you're out in your areas of influence affecting the kingdom of God for the glory of God through the power of His Spirit. See, if you want to follow God, you need faith. If you want to serve God, you need faith. Don't be discouraged. Don't listen to the enemy. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe over the years just of being here in this church. 
occasionally, a little temptation will come. You know, hey, maybe just try this program. Try this thing. Well, look at what this church is doing. Man, they failed. Look at what they're doing. Maybe your sermons are too long. Maybe, maybe you know, you're, you're not as, as gifted a communicator as some of these other people, and maybe I'll just hang it up. And I mean, all this stuff runs through somebody's mind. And I'm sure not just as a pastor. I'm sure as a Sunday school worker, you're putting in time, you're putting in, in, in preparation for your, your Sunday school, and well, you got two kids. You know, and I thank you for, it doesn't matter whether you have one kid, or a hundred kids. You should put in the same amount of preparation because that little soul, that little child needs to hear the word of God taught in a way that is honoring to God. See, if you want to please our God and you don't have faith, you're going to have to please some other God because our God is the God who has to be pleased by faith. And if you're a child of God, this has to be one of the most, you know, liberating experiences in the life of the child of God to re- realize that God can be trusted, that we can read his word. And when he says, here's how the church should operate, that we can apply that and say, OK, we're going to trust you, God. And we're going to do what you tell us to do. I mean, when you stop and you realize that the promises of God are for you, they're for me, and that we can live experientially in the light of that reality here while we're here on earth. I mean, that's amazing. There's an author by the name of Leonard Ravenhill, and he writes several different books. His father was a man who was not a great preacher or anything like that, but he realized his ministry for God, and he went to hospitals day by day, and he was an evangelist, just going around to different hospitals, talking to men, talking to women. Some of them were dying, some of them were ill, some of them were boys, girls, whatever, and he would just simply talk to them about his Savior. And he led hundreds and hundreds to Christ through that little ministry that he had. And he was especially good at reaching out to Roman Catholics because that's from which he came. He came out of the Roman Catholic Church. The Lord saved him out of that. And one day he was talking to a man, and the man turned around to him, and the man objected and said, you know what, I've prayed to God, and God didn't hear me. And Ravenhill's father turned to him and said, look, if the king of England were to come into this room right now, and I was to sit on his bed, and I was to ask him for a five-pound note, because I am a subject of this nation, do you think he would give it to me? The man looked at him and said, well, I I don't think he'd give it to you. And then Ravenhill's father went on to say, well, what about if the Prince of Wales came into this little room and asked the King of England for a five-pound note? And the man answered, of course he would give it to him. That's his father. He's his son. And Ravenhill turned to that man and he said, yes, that's it, isn't it? It all has to do with the relationship. See, child of God today, whatever you're going through, whatever you feel your deficiency is in Christ or your spiritual life, whatever it is, I I pray that you would realize the wealth that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
an unlimited access to unlimited resources that we have through Christ. We have everything, for we have Christ. Remember the nursery rhyme, Old Mother Hubbard? Well, and there's nothing in the cupboard, remember that? Well, there's a cupboard there, and, and all it takes is an arm of faith to reach up. And that's what the book of Hebrews is, is, is teaching about over and over again. Reaching up to the cupboard of God and opening up and taking by faith and boldness what is our right to have in Christ. And that's what Haggai's message to Zerubbabel is here. He's, have faith in your God. And he goes on and he lists four reasons why. First of all, the first point is because he's going to shake the earth. Good thing I didn't preach this message last Sunday and then had the earthquake. Boy, you know. What was Zerubbabel worried about here? See, he was worried about his enemies. He was worried about everything going wrong again. Sure, they were out of captivity, but that was about it. Maybe you're in this place. Maybe you're a compulsive worrier. You're only out of the valley. You're only out of captivity. And you're worrying about the next one. It hasn't even come yet. He's standing there and God says, Look, have faith in me. Because I'm going to shake the earth. Look at what he says in verse 20. 21. He says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. See, God was telling this man... Zerubbabel, he was encouraging him, don't be afraid. One of these days, I'm going to bring an earthquake on the earth. That's speaking of what? God's divine judgment, right? That's ordained by God. And one day will come and will be, this judgment will be poured out over all the nations and they will suffer. Verse 22 says, the overflow of God's anger. I mean, this, you can just see it. The Bible talks in other places about the cup of iniquity. It talks about the cup of the wrath of God, and it's being filled up by the sins of men, and eventually it's going to be poured out. I believe today we are definitely at this moment, perhaps in your personal life, maybe there's men sinning against you, inflicting, opposing you, whatever it might be. It's filling up. By the second, in one day, when it's full to overflowing, God's wrath, it says, will overflow the cup and hit the enemy. I mean, that must have meant something to Zerubbabel. In verse 21, some commentators believe that he's referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in Genesis chapter 19, verses 23 and 20, we see... They're the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were defiling themselves, men with men, homosexuality. 
See, and that's what we focus on. That's the sin we focus on. But, you know, the primary sin of Sodom, if you, if you search the Word of God, you'll find out the primary sin was really pride. It was really pride. Saying, we're going to live like we're going to live, and we don't care what you say, God. It says, the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Why did he do that? You think, man, that's, that's a little impatient God. The world comes along and says, oh, that's the loving God you're talking about. Yeah, I don't think I want to know him. Genesis 18, 20, it says, And the Lord said, Because of the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah, and because it's great, and because their sin is very grievous. See, God was punishing their sin. Their cup of iniquity, his cup of wrath, had filled up to overflowing, and then it poured out on them. God's going to shake the earth in a way that he's never done it before. You think this was bad over in Japan? That's nothing. That's nothing. I mean, I was watching video of these waves come into Santa Cruz Harbor. I mean, you know, this is, you know, kind of a little wave. Can you imagine if that wave was 20, 30 feet high? What devastation would have been left in its path? And he said he's going to do it in a way that he's never done it before. I mean, God help anyone who's left down here to face it. What that tells me is that sin either ends up on the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary, or you know what? You have to pay for it in hell. There's only two options. Christ either bears your sin away on the cross, you have faith in his cross, and you'll never have to face torment in hell, a very real place, or if you don't choose that, then you do end up in hell. But sin has to be dealt with, beloved, one way or another. I want to ask you this morning, how has your sin been dealt with? Are you sure that your sin has been nailed to the cross of Christ? Are you positive? Because let me tell you this morning, unless you're 100% sure, I can honestly say, I'm sure that you will pay for it in hell. There's no 98%, there's no 99%. Verse 22, it's talking about the exodus from Edith. I'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'll destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. Here it is, he says, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. Remember when they were coming out of Egypt? Those people were armed to the teeth. What did God's people have? Nothing. Nothing, not a thing. They didn't even have a weapon. But what they have? They had their God. And they were coming out of Egypt and they stood. And maybe it's like you this morning. You know, you're standing at your Red Sea. You can't go forward. You turn around and the enemy's coming fast on your heels. You can't go back. You can't go right. You can't go left. You can't go up. You can't go down. It seems impossible. God says, you know what, I'm going to make a way for you. And God came. It says there that he came 
And there he remained. Not so much as one of them was left when the whole thing was over. God watches out for his own people. God shook the earth, and you know what? He's going to shake it again. I don't care what your circumstances are. I know that God knows exactly what they are. Don't be overwhelmed by them. Because the Bible promises that we're going to, in the end times, suffer for Christ. And I don't even think we've scraped the surface of suffering for Christ yet, especially in this nation. Secondly, there was also going to be a smashing of the kingdoms. You read about the overthrow of the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you look at the, the chariots that were overthrown by those who rode in them, the riders that say shall come down and every one will be destroyed. By what? How are they going to be destroyed? By the sword of his brother. Do you know what God did throughout the Old Testament when you read the Old Testament books and there's a lot of wars and a lot of different things going on? I mean, this is just God being supernatural God. Here's a lesson. The people in the armies of Judah and Israel, they didn't stand back on the sidelines and ask God, you know what, come in and take care of this enemy for us, please. We don't want to get our hands dirty. We're just going to sit back and watch our supernatural God do what he does best. No, you know what? They had to lift up their sword. They had to lift up their armor. They had to lift up their shield. And they had to start to run. They had to flex their muscles. They had to breathe and fight. They had to have energy. And they had to put everything they had into the battle. And when they did that, and at the same time, they're trusting God to do what he's promised to do because they had a supernatural God. And that's what we have to do today, beloved. We can't just sit back and allow our circumstances to take over in our lives, or in God's work. And hope that somehow the Lord is just going to make everything all right. Supernaturally, while we sleep. If we're not prepared to do what we can do, then God will not do what he can do. I really believe that. In the Old Testament, God used to come into the battles. And do you know what he used to do? He would confound the enemy every time. He confused their enemies. So much in verse 22, it says that each brother, the enemy, turned against themselves and they began to kill each other. And then the Judeans, the Israelites, they would have the victory, not by their own hand, but by God's supernatural hand. But let me tell you this morning, if we're going to have victory in the work of God or the victory of faith in our own lives even, it's not going to be by our own hand. We're going to have to trust God. Even when we look into the Word of God and you see that God has been reminding us You'll never do anything by your own hand. That's why, unfortunately, you know what? Some of these modern-day churches with all their creativity and all their market-driven, purpose-driven stuff and all that stuff, I think it's all going to burn up. I really do. Because it's generated by somebody's hand. It's somebody's creative venture that's doing these things. So you've got to put everything that you've got into the work of God. And at the end of the day, trust him to do what is going to be victorious. 
We can't just sit back, expect God to work. That's what the Word of God teaches us. There's going to come a, a day when we see the Word of God, we see it testified to this. You can read about it in Ezekiel. And just like in the story of Gideon and the, the Midianites when they were all confounded and judges, you, you know about that little story. And they turned upon one another and they killed each other. That's going to happen in the future. When the nations are surrounding Israel, the Bible says God will come in and confound them. And it's going to look like Israel doesn't have a prayer in the world. But let's personalize this. What are the enemies in your own life? Is it that besetting sin that just won't go away? Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's poverty. Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe it's sorrow. Whatever it may be, they're all our enemies. Some of them we've brought upon ourselves. Some of them we could have never brought upon ourselves. But no matter what they are, the secret is this. If we surrender all that we have to God in the battle, he will perform the victory. I pray that you believe that this morning. Because if you don't believe it, you'll never have a victory. There's going to be a day coming, we read about it in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It tells us on a wider scale that God is going to smash man's kingdoms. It says, and in the days of these kings, in verse 44 of Daniel 2, these kings shall the God of heaven set upon a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. You know, history tells us that most, most uh, nations in the world have a history. Statistics say they last empires and stuff, 250, 300 years, the average. But it's interesting that this kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be an eternal kingdom. He will establish his kingdom and his kingdom and his government and his rule, and there is not going to be any end to it. I mean, talk about being on the winning side. He's going to establish that kingdom. You read about it in Psalm 2. It says, why do the heathens rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing in verse 1? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. (laughs) He's going to merely laugh at their efforts. See, today, people laugh at the church, people laugh at Christians, but you know what? There's going to come a day when he will laugh at them. It says, the Lord shall have them in derision. In other words, he's going to confuse them. They shall he speak, then shall he speak unto them his wrath and vex them in his displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee, ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen of your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. See, there's a day coming, beloved. You have to understand this. There's a day coming when it says every knee will bow. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what God you've bowed down to before. It, none of that matters. The day's going to come when you're going to bow down to the Lord and you're going to worship Him. At that point... That future point in history, 
If you're not saved, it's too late. But you know what? Even though you're not saved, you're, it says your tongue will still confess that he's, he's Lord for the glory of God the Father. And Jesus is going to reign. See, there's going to be a king of kings who comes and sets up his rule. You think about some of these countries who are overthrowing their governments and you see the absence of any rule after the government is overthrown and it's, it's pure chaos until a government rises up and takes control once again. That's what's happening in our world. They've taken the king of kings and they basically booted him. And there's no one in, in charge other than the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Maybe you're here this morning and you can feel the absence of Christ in your own life. You can cry out to him this morning and know for certain that he will answer that prayer and he will save you when you come to him in true repentance in desperate need. Thirdly, he wanted to encourage Zerubbabel here in the third message that was given by Haggai to this servant Basically, that he wanted him to know that he provided a servant, servant of Jehovah. Look at verse 23. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now notice it says, This day. On that day, what the Holy Spirit is speaking of here is a future day. God is telling them of a time to come. It didn't happen in their history. It didn't happen immediately. It was a future day that the Bible describes, that all the prophets describe. A day when Christ would reign with his royal authority upon the earth. Now the question is simply this, why does God address Zerubbabel? And why indeed does God refer to Zerubbabel? I mean, if it's not, if it's got nothing to do specifically with him, if it's something that's future, because I mean, he would have died long after this would come to pass. So how could God be saying to him, I'll take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, saith the Lord, and make him a signet. It's important that we understand this. I want you to look at chapter 1 once again in verse 1, and look at what it says. In the first instance that we find Zerubbabel, we see that the message came on the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord, the Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah. What's he called there? He's called what? The governor of Judah, right? Go to verse uh, 14. You remember, they're all stirred and they're all moved by the word of God. What's he called there? Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, what? Governor of Judah. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Once again, governor of Judah. Chapter 
to verse 21. We've already read that. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. But look at what he's called in verse 25. Interesting. O Zerubbabel, not governor of Judah, but what? My servant. Why the change? Why the change? If you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll find this. God says, my servant David. Have you ever noticed that? And then he says, my servant Israel. Not the person, but the nation. My servant Israel. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 52 quickly. Isaiah 52 And look at what it says here in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So so shall he sprinkle many nations, kings, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. See, anyone that's called the servant of God within the word of God is a, you have to understand this, is a picture or a type, you might say, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Messiah of God. The Christ of God is the servant of God. That's what the the book of Isaiah shows us clearly over and over again. The suffering servant, the suffering Christ is our Savior and our Lord. Well, what does he say? Back to Haggai, he says, Zerubbabel, my servant. And you say, well, does that mean he's referring to Christ? Well, in Matthew, and this is kind of interesting, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, where we have all the genealogy going on there, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And you have to note here, Elijah is called in the New Testament Elias, because it's a, it's a, it's a Greek transliteration, so depending on what version you have or whatever. Um, but look at verse 12 with me. It says, And after the, the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shetiel, and Shetiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Ibuhud, and Ibuhud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Hmm. Now, if you look back at Haggai, chapter 2, verse 23, it says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. Not Zerubbabel the governor, but Zerubbabel my servant, the son of Shetiel, says the Lord. What the Holy Spirit here is trying to get across to us is not a personal fulfillment to Zerubbabel, but really, you might say, a positional fulfillment in his line. He's in Christ's lineage. Zerubbabel was the son of David, not a direct son, but he was in the line of David. And you know as well as I do that the Messiah came out of the line of David. Therefore, the Messiah came in the line of Zerubbabel. And so what God is saying is, you know what? Look, O Judah, one day I'm going to bring out of Zerubbabel's loins, humanly speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Son of God, the Deliverer, my suffering servant. I mean, it's incredible how the Word of God ties all this together. It fits together beautifully. If you look at Luke chapter 1, it says, And behold, in verse uh, 31 there, it says, And behold, you shall consume consume in your womb and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. He shall be great, and his shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. He wants to encourage Zerubbabel. He wants him to understand that one day he's going to shake the earth like it's never been shaken. He's going to smash all the enemies and all the kingdoms. And you know what? He's going to provide a servant, Jehovah, even through his line. And then the last thing quickly is this fourth little message of encouragement speaks of a signet of God's choosing in verse 23. It says, I will make you as a signet for I have chosen you, says the Lord. What's a signet? It's a signet ring. If you look in the Old Testament, you find it's used in three different ways. First of all, it's used as a personal signature of a person, a stamp for their name. You know, some of you have those little stamps, you know, and you have your name and your address on it, and you just have to stamp it in the return thing, and you don't have to write anything out. Well, that's kind of what it, what it was. It verified that that came from who it came from. Secondly, you find that it was something that was used in the palace and in the courts to validate royal authority within a sealed document. And also, thirdly, it was used as a guarantee to fulfill a future promise that had been written. But here's the key. The signet always represented the owner. It always represented the owner. Well, who's talking about a signet here? Who's actually bringing this message through Haggai? It's God. And God is saying, I'm going to make you Zerubbabel, not you Zerubbabel, but your seed, my servant's going to be my signet, and he's going to be my personal stamp, the express image of my person, and he's going to seal everything, and everything in him will come together. Princes would sign their edict and stamp it, great commissions with their, their signet, but Christ, the Son of God, in his own indelible ink of his own blood, signed the great charter of eternal salvation and the gospel for us all. And everything is secured in that signet that he signed. Every man that was given authority or responsibility throughout the history of the world, eventually they mess up. There was Noah, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, got on the ark, thought everything was fine. As soon as he gets off, what's he do? He goes and gets drunk. (laughs) You have David, a man after God's own heart. What did he do? He's found in bed with a married woman then murdered her husband. Adam, even the father of our beginning, what did he do? He was made responsible over the whole universe and he couldn't handle it. And we we can go over and over and over this. But the point is, is that he wanted to encourage Zerubbabel that no matter what is going to happen, I am still God and I will take care of these things. God will deliver you. God will save you. I pray that we believe that truth today. Winston Churchill said, one thing we have learned from history is that we don't learn from history. That's right, isn't it? I hope in these past weeks as we've kind of 
weaved our way through the book of Haggai that you've learned one thing. That as a follower of the Most High God, if you give your all to Christ, if you give your all to what He's called you to do, no matter what it is, He will give all that He has back to you. And we will truly see the blessing of God's hand upon our lives, upon our church, and upon our ministries. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, that you have so beautifully woven all these verses together in this small book. And we look around the world and even in our own lives and we see the imprint of God on this world all over it. But Lord, we as your children look forward to a day when that imprint of that signet will be imprinted for all to see. But Lord, we ask today that you would imprint it upon our lives so that they may see the truth before it's too late. Lord, I pray that you would breathe your holy fire into our hearts. Whatever our need may be here today, that we would turn to you, that we would expect you to work, that we wouldn't be stuck in unbelief, but Lord, that we would believe you to do more and abundantly beyond we can even comprehend here in this place. Father, there's so many lost people in our area that need to be saved. And God, you're not done working. You desire for all men to come to repentance, your word says. Lord, I pray that we would feel the start of a a passion within our own hearts, within our own lives that desire to to go out from this place, out from these four walls, into a lost and dying world, and to share the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. Whatever our need may be here today, Lord, draw us near to you. Remind us of your grace and your mercy. Father, we ask you to do your work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.